tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Adventure, adventure, adventure. Adventure in the Time of the Anthropocene, with me, Jake Smith. The radio drama series Escape ran on the CBS radio network between 1947 and 1954. Escape was an anthology drama, which meant there was a new, original story for each episode. And it's earned a place among the pantheon of shows that are considered to be classics of the golden age of American radio. It's easy to understand why. The show featured a roster of talented actors and producers who were working on memorable scripts that were brought to life with high production values that still sound remarkably fresh today. But Escape is something more than a relic from a bygone era of media history. In fact, we can hear the show as a sonic archive that comes from a time that has crucial relevance for our present moment. The years when Escape was on the air were the twilight of the golden age of American radio drama, but they were also the dawn of the Anthropocene, the name for an epoch in which human activity outranks other geological forces. Scientists and environmental critics differ about when the Anthropocene begins, but many see a decisive shift occurring immediately following World War II. At that time, fallout from nuclear explosions left a mark in the planet's geological strata and a great acceleration in resource extraction population growth, and energy consumption meant that the world's ecosystems began to change more rapidly and extensively than in any other comparable period in human history. Thinking about how radio's late golden age and the emergence of the Anthropocene were happening at about the same time has prompted me to listen to Escape with an ecological ear. I want to hear these stories from the post-war era in a new way so that they speak to current environmental issues. Now, I'm not suggesting that the producers of Escape had these things in mind. They weren't thinking about the Anthropocene and they weren't trying to spur environmental activism. They were trying to tell exciting, ear-grabbing stories in audio and they were successful. You might say that my project is to get you to listen to those classic radio stories in stereo, in two ways at once. I want you to listen to adventure 
and enjoy these classics of radio storytelling. And I want you to listen adventurously to the quiet environmental overtones and ecological whispers that might be heard in shows that were made during the roar of the Great Acceleration. One way that I'll encourage that kind of stereophonic listening is to put these post-war radio dramas in conversation with contemporary sound artists. For example, right now we're listening to the sound artist Gilead's sonic representation of a 1946 test of a nuclear bomb. In this 10-part podcast and the essay and website that goes along with it, I reboot Escape as E-S-C. In the essay, you can read more about the methodological and theoretical motivations that have guided me and learn about key terms like the Anthropocene and adventure. The website where you accessed this episode of the podcast is hosted by the University of Michigan Press. There, you can find links to more information about the pressing environmental issues we'll address and about the sound artists whose work we'll hear. Before we go any further, I want to introduce a technique that I'll be using to encourage adventurous listening throughout this series. Remember that Escape was an anthology series, and it told particular kinds of stories. Adventure stories. Literary critics have defined the adventure genre by a particular kind of spatial dynamics. Adventures usually involve dangerous travel, the crossing of borders, and heroes who are displaced from their usual environment. The critic M. M. Bakhtin defines adventure as a narrative form in which action unfolds against a very broad geographical backdrop, allowing for the genre's characteristic chases, abductions, and escapes. So adventures tend to need a lot of space, but the particular qualities of those spaces tend to be left utterly abstract. For a shipwreck, one must have a sea, Bakhtin writes. But which particular sea, in the geographical and historical sense, makes no difference at all? Bakhtin writes that the addition of specific local details to an adventure narrative works to fetter its freedom and flexibility by grounding it in a particular local order. Bakhtin calls that process of adding specific local details concretization. Throughout this podcast, Concretization will be one of the main ways I prompt you to listen adventurously to escape. I'll do that by adding specific details about the settings, sites, and habitats in which these stories take place in order to allow for new structures of knowledge to coalesce around them. By making the abstract spaces of adventure more concrete, we might find that the particular sea where the shipwreck takes place makes a difference after all. Let's get started with one of the most popular stories told on Escape, which begins like this. 
Tonight, we escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence as we bring you again in response to hundreds of requests Three Skeleton Key starring Vincent Price This is the opening of Escape's adaptation of Georges Gustave Tudouze's short story Three Skeleton Key As you can hear from that reference to hundreds of requests this was a popular story and Escape broadcast it on three different occasions in 1949 1950, and 1953. Not only was Three Skeleton Key one of the most popular episodes of Escape, but it features some prominent themes that cut across the entire run of the show. In particular, it's one of 70 episodes of Escape that take place along the network of global shipping. This means that more than one-third of Escape stories took place in a mid-century network of ocean-going ships, ports, and in this case, lighthouses. So, Three Skeleton Key is a representative episode of Escape because it thematizes a global network of travel and trade, but it also depicts the infrastructure of that network in a state of disruption and collapse. In this and the next two episodes of my podcast, We'll be listening to some of Escape's infrastructural adventures. This means I'll be paying attention to the infrastructure in the narrative and to the narrative of the infrastructure, to how sites like lighthouses can be the fictional settings for adventure, as well as features of the environment with their own history. We'll see that this kind of infrastructural disposition is a useful way to help us bring an environmental awareness to these shows. Infrastructure sites can be contact zones between human networks and non-human creatures, and they require that we think about multiple levels of scale, from the personal to the global. We're listening to a recording that was made by the sound artist Alan Lamb. These are sounds made by an abandoned telegraph wire in the Australian outback. By bringing those wires to life, Lamb's work is a great example of how sound art can have an infrastructural disposition. At the start of Three Skeleton Key, we meet Jean, played by Vincent Price. Jean's a member of a three-person crew that maintains the lonely lighthouse described in the opening announcement. Jean sets the scene. Picture this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the lighthouse rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door. And in you went. And up. Yes, up and up and round and round. Past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope, casks of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds and cartons and cans. And up. And up and up. Round and round. 
Over the light storeroom was the food storeroom, and over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room... This opening sequence establishes the broadcast as what Nicole Starselsky calls a nodal narrative. That's a story that takes place within the node of an infrastructural network, like this lighthouse. The lighthouse was an essential node in the network of international shipping, and Jean explains that his lighthouse exists to warn ships away from dangerous submerged reefs. Lighthouses like Jean's proliferated in the second half of the 19th century with the rise of steam-powered shipping and increased calls for coastal aids to navigation. We're listening to the sound of foghorns, a sonic component in this ship-to-shore technological infrastructure. The construction of lighthouses on the bare rock of an exposed coast required sophisticated tools and new engineering techniques, and they were recognized as a stunning technological achievement comparable to the great suspension bridges, railways, and early skyscrapers of the era. France's coastal light technology was considered to be the gold standard at this time, which makes it fitting that Three Skeleton Key is set in a French lighthouse. Moreover, French Guyana had a reputation as an outpost at the edge of the civilized world and was widely considered to be uncolonizable by Europeans, due in part to its dangerous harbors and malarial swamps. That reputation was reinforced when it became a French penal colony in the 1850s. That history is referenced in Taduz's story when we learn that the name Three Skeleton Key refers to three convicts who escaped from the penal colony only to die of hunger on the rocks. When they were discovered, all that remained of them was their bones, picked clean by the birds. It's here that we should note that escape had preferred sites of adventure, and its episodes tended to cluster in particular geographical areas, like the South Sea Islands, South America, Africa, India, and the Caribbean. This is a reminder that the years when escape was on the air coincide not only with the golden age of radio and the dawn of the Anthropocene, but with the period of decolonization. And whatever else it might be, the show is an archive of sensibilities shaped by Western imperialism, colonial and corporate exploitation, racism, and white male heterosexual fantasy. So listening adventurously to escape will require a post-colonial as well as an eco-critical ear. The French Guyana setting also amplifies the sense that the lighthouse is a network node that's situated precariously within its surrounding environment. And all about it, the churning water, gray-green scum dappled, warm as soup, and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish, great violet schools of Portuguese man-o-war, and yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this weren't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. So, from the perspective of an infrastructural disposition, 
The opening minutes of Three Skeleton Key signal that this will be a nodal narrative in which strategies of insulation will play a central role. In other words, this is going to be a drama about a struggle to keep the lighthouse separate from its surrounding environment, to stabilize the steady flow of traffic through the global shipping network. That dramatic tension is enacted on the level of the show's sound design. Jean ends his tour of the lighthouse in the gallery, where his description of the light is accompanied by shimmering orchestra stabs. And over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty, big steel and bronze baby with the sun gleaming through the glass walls all about, bouncing blinding little beams off the big shining reflectors, glittering and refracting through her lenses, the whole gigantic bulk of her balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. She was a sweetheart of a light. I want to think more about this sound, the clicking of the light's mechanism, so I've looped this section of the broadcast. This is another strategy that I'll be using throughout the podcast to reboot Escape for an era of digital audio. Now that Escape's episodes exist as digital files available online, not only can I mash them up with contemporary sound art, but I can manipulate them, zooming in to details that were left in the background of the original broadcast. The sound of the steady, regular clicking of the light in operation is what Roland Barthes might call a rustle, the sound of the good functioning of a machine. It's happy machines that rustle, Bart writes. Like the purr of a well-tuned engine, the clicking of the light provides a reassuring sign of multiple parts in coordinated motion, the smooth working of a complex, integrated mechanical system. The sonic contrast to the light's reassuring rustle arrives in spectacular form when Jean and his co-workers notice a derelict ship heading directly towards the reef. A three-master, a big one, about a half mile off and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. Once the ship gets close enough to observe with binoculars, the men are horrified at what they discover. I had to focus and then my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all were hundreds, no thousands, no mi- I don't know, an endless number of enormous rats. The ship crashes against the reef, and the mass of hungry rats encircle and engulf the lighthouse. Look. See them? No. Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at the millions. They smell us. Here they come. Close the door. I can't, I can't. It's stuck. Here. 
This non-human multitude is a showcase for stunning sound effects. The squealing rats were created in the studio by rubbing wet corks on a sheet of glass. The sound effects of the show were admired by radio professionals as well as audiences, as indicated by this announcement at the end of the episode. Sound effects on three skeleton key... Created by Cliff Thorsness and executed today by Mr. Thorsness, Gus Bays, and Jack Sixsmith, have been awarded the best of the year by Radio and Television Life magazine. Later in the show, the chaotic sound of the rats is contrasted with the soothing rustle of the machine during a scene in which the animals cover the gallery windows and emit pained screeches when the beam from the rotating light touches them. Life drove them mad as she swung slowly and smoothly about. She blinded them in the fierce stabbing bar of light, moving continually about, ever turning, ever touching, ever moving around and around, and they twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light. The bright light moving, and behind on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back, but you cannot help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you could not see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. The dissonant harmony of rustle and squeak is the sonic representation of the tension between infrastructure and environment that structures the story. Remember that one of my goals is to concretize the abstract spaces of Escape's adventures. I've already added some concrete details about the lighthouse to ground it in a history of French colonialism and modern engineering. What might happen if we learned some more concrete details about the rats? Ship's rats, like the ones in the story, are often the example of a worst-case scenario of an invasive species. One famous account of the devastating impact that ship's rats can have on a fragile island ecosystem concerns a small volcanic island northeast of Australia. In June of 1918, a ship called the SS Macambo struck a reef off of Lord Howe Island and rats from the ship scurried ashore, causing an immediate and drastic reduction in bird life on the island. Within three years of the rats' arrival, five species of endemic forest birds had become extinct. In 1921, a resident of the island wrote that just two years earlier, the forests of Lord Howe Island were joyous with the notes of myriad birds, large and small and of many kinds. Two years later, the ravages of the rats had made the call of a bird a rarity, such that the quietness of death reigns where all was melody. Sally Ann McIntyre is a sound artist whose work addresses the issue of extinction. This is the holotype of the Lord Howe swamp hen. Extinct. There are two skins of this bird in existence. One here at the Natural History Museum in Vienna and one 
in Liverpool at the World Museum. There are also several paintings and some subfossil bones. McIntyre goes to museums and makes recordings of specimens of extinct birds, like this Lord Howe Island swamp hen. The eerie silence of these stuffed birds is a powerful way to draw our attention to the irrevocable loss of extinction. McIntyre is the kind of ecologically minded sound artist whose field recordings I want to put in conversation with Escape's studio-based adventures. In another work, McIntyre transcribed written accounts of the call of the extinct Huya bird to be played on music boxes. She then played back these ghostly sounds in the bird's original habitat. Recall Bakhtin's example of the abstract spaces of adventure. For a shipwreck, one must have a sea, but which particular sea makes no difference at all. When we listen to adventure, this might be true. It doesn't make much difference if the lighthouse is off the coast of French Guiana, or Africa, or India, or New Zealand. But if we listen adventurously, from the perspective of island ecosystems like Lord Howe Island, then concrete geographical and ecological details about the history of ships' rats, for example, start to make a great deal of difference. And Three Skeleton Key begins to sound in a different way. By telling the story of an isolated island community under siege by a horde of ships' rats, Three Skeleton Key facilitates a mode of adventurous listening from a non-human perspective, placing us in the position of Lord Howe Island's extinct fantails, fly-eaters, and starlings. The siege-like containment of the men in the lighthouse trapped by the swarm of rats is typical of a style of radio narrative that was prevalent at this time. The radio scholar Neil Verma describes a trend in post-war radio drama towards the depiction of an immobilized hero situated within nested spheres of earshot. In these stories, a character was trapped in a fortified close position and wanted to escape to an open distance space, but to do that had to pass through a perilous middle distance. In Three Skeleton Key, the rustle of the light defines the fortified close position and the squeals of the rats demarcate the perilous middle distance beyond which lies safety. It's not long before the fortifications of the lighthouse are breached as the rats gnaw through the wooden window panes. Louis, we got to go up. Next level was the middle quarters in the kitchen. I slammed the trap door there too, but it too was wood. The men retreat to the gallery where they hear the rats devouring their food supplies in the storerooms beneath them. Eventually, the light runs out of fuel and shuts off. That night I tended the light 
but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day we lay, thirst-tormented, starving, waiting, waiting, and the following night I again tended the light, but the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted, and quite suddenly, about midnight, the light went out. When we're listening to the story with an infrastructural disposition, this is the moment when strategies of insulation break down, and Three Skeleton Key now becomes a narrative of network disruption. In Toduz's short story, agents of the network arrive to correct the disruption caused by the rats. A patrol boat from the mainland arrives, lures the rats to a barge filled with meat, and then destroys them with an artillery shell. The escape adaptation of the story ends quite differently. As the demoralized men sit in the darkness of the gallery, suddenly there's a change in the nested spheres of earshot. And then the rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights, came softly and innocently at us. The light was out. They didn't know. I wanted to open the windows to call out to them, to warn them somehow, but I was afraid. What if, what if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay. Grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger or crewman off watch didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's all. That's the story. The sun came up and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. The broadcast ends with John speaking directly to the listener from sometime after this nightmarish experience. Life in the lights isn't bad, But sometimes when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous, sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. The ending of Escape's adaptation of the story is well-suited to radio, since it plays with the conventions of those nested spheres of earshot. 
the sound of the cornet activates the distant space that was previously masked by the sound of the rats in the middle distance. But also notice how the escape ending changes the story's depiction of the infrastructural network that the lighthouse is part of. In Tadouz's short story, the disruption of the network is corrected by agents of the network, the Coastal Patrol. Not so in the escape broadcast, where the rats remain a perpetual risk. For Jean, working in a lighthouse requires that he get used to the idea that the rats could return at any time. Sometimes when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous, sure. In other words, the escape version draws our attention to the fact that the source of the network disruption comes from within the network itself. The network node of the lighthouse may be insulated against the devilfish, Portuguese man-of-war, and sharks in the water off the French Guiana coast, but not against the rats that are stowaways on the very ocean-going ships that constitute the network. The rats in the story start to seem less like a monstrous aberration and more like an inherent feature of global shipping. In fact, rats have accompanied human travel and trade since at least the time of the Crusades. And Escape's ending makes that long history audible through a subtle reference to a much older story. Notice how the lighthouse is rid of the rats by the music of a cornet which lures the creatures out to sea. Escape's version of the ending brings Three Skeleton Key into dialogue with the well-known tale of the Pied Piper of Hamlin. Hamlin town is in Brunswick, near beautiful Hanover City. The river Weser, deep and wide, washes its walls on the southern side, a pleasanter spot you never spy. Almost 500 years ago, to see the townsfolk suffer so from vermin, t'was a pity. Rats. Rats. The producers of Escape may have been inspired to make this connection by a broadcast of the Pied Piper story on CBS's Columbia Workshop in 1946, which featured original music by Artie Shaw. Pied Piper legend dates from the 13th century, and its setting in the German port city of Hamlin suggests a connection to a previous era of shipping. In fact, some scholars have interpreted the story as a veiled reference to a deadly outbreak of typhus caused by rats from visiting merchant ships. The inhabitants of towns like Hamlin would have had many opportunities to develop such legends, since rats and the fleas and bacteria that they carry have been identified as the source not only of typhus, but of the bubonic plague. As produced on Escape, the Pied Piper and Three Skeleton Key become sister narratives.
They both explore the risks involved in the multi-species migrations that have developed along the routes of global shipping. And they're both stories of network blowback, dramatizing the unintended consequences of global trade. Hearing the Pied Piper as a ghost text that haunts Three Skeleton Key might prompt us to think differently about the rats. After all, human children in the story of Hamlin are just as susceptible to the Piper's music as are the rats. And the story ends with the children of the town, like the rats before them, being led away, never to return. When lo, as the children reached the mountainside, a wondrous portal opened wide. As if a cavern were suddenly hollowed, and the piper advanced, and the children followed. And when all were in to the very last, the door in the mountainside shut fast. The sense that rats and humans mirror each other, or that they might somehow share the same fate, makes it harder to view the animals in the story as simply monstrous villains. Some ecologists have questioned the demonization of alien species and even refer to a green xenophobia that makes non-native species scapegoats for much wider problems of pollution and environmental decline. We need a nuanced attitude towards introduced species, both for the sake of environmental policy and to counter rhetoric that naturalizes the demonization of human migrants. I guess what I'm saying is that adventurous listening requires that we open our ears both to the subtleties to be found in the squealing of the rats and to the silences of the extinct species that have been caught in their wake. The rats that we hear in Three Skeleton Key become complex and ambivalent figures for our current era, a period during which modern modes of travel have made the world into one interconnected habitat. One argument for demarcating the Anthropocene as a geological epoch is that future archaeologists will find a radical change in the fossil record from the last century that arises from the geographic redistribution of species transported in the ballast of ships. From this perspective, nodes along the shipping network, like lighthouses, become signals that warn not only of dangerous reefs, but of dangerous times. So, as we come to the end of this first ESC podcast, I hope I've shown that escape can be more than a relic of old-time radio. It told stories that can resonate as allegories for the Anthropocene when we listen to them adventurously. In episodes to come, we'll hear more amazing work by contemporary sound artists to reboot radio dramas of the past, and we'll learn more about the environmental challenges that we face today, challenges that force us to reimagine what counts as adventure.
ESC was written and produced by me, Jake Smith, and published in 2019 by the University of Michigan Press under a Creative Commons NC license. Post-production for the podcast is by Liam Davis. Special thanks to Mary Francis and to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its support of the Fulcrum platform on which this publication is hosted. You can find all 10 episodes of ESC and learn more about the sound artists and environmental issues that I discuss at www.press.umich.edu/p/esc. Thanks for listening.